Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films and the people that made them, and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film history one memory at a time. Tonight, we're doing a well-deserved tribute to director Billy Wilder, and my guest host is media specialist Stan Rosenfield, with whom I previously discussed Wilder's classic World War II prisoner of war film, Stalag 17. Welcome, Stan. Hey, welcome back. Thanks, Steve and Ben. How are you guys doing? We're good. We're good. And Stan, you know, you and I have known each other for over 40 years. Actually, we met in 19... 80 I believe and so it's 43 years and yet I yeah. the only thing I know about you pre-Hollywood was that you went to the University of Oklahoma and that's correct right that is correct so uh, tell tell us a little bit of how you made your way to Hollywood from the university well um I had family that lived in Los Angeles and I had come out here during the summer on many occasions almost every year I loved it here and uh, when I graduated uh, college, um, I sat around the house. Uh, my mother had just passed away. And I realized that tomorrow I have, for the first time in my life, I have nothing to do. I have nowhere to go. I have no obligations. So I think I'm just going to get in the car and head on Highway 66 till I hit the ocean, which is what I did. I had no. Uh, goal in mind of what I was going to do. Uh, I just figured I would figure it out when I got there. My first job uh, was working for a subsidiary of IBM in data processing. I hated it. I uh, wasn't cut out for it. It wasn't me. And I kept hearing voices in my mind. I was, I'm still able to do it. Manufacture conversations I'm going to have with somebody. And uh, I visualize me going in and saying to the boss, this isn't for me, this isn't my uh, uh, wheelhouse. And he would say, you haven't given it a chance. Uh, all the people that have worked here have been here for a long time. They really enjoy it. You need to give it a chance. And for that reason, I didn't go in. And about a month later on a rainy Monday morning, I drove to the uh, office and I started working with uh, my uh, machines because uh, it was data processing and somebody came up to me and said uh, the boss wants to see you in his office so I knew instantly what it was about it wasn't inviting me to go to the Christmas party and uh, I uh, on the way home I, I got uh, two weeks severance and on the way home I realized that what I needed to do is to get into a people business and I called the William Morris agent somebody said you ought to call the William Morris agency and I said, well, what do they do? And they said, well, they're, they're a, uh, a theatrical agency. And I said, like, if you want to go to a play, you call them up and buy a ticket. And they said, no, their, their job is to get uh, performers, whether they're actors or directors or uh, musicians or whatnot work. And I so I, and they have a, what they call an agent training program. And I called over there and I said, uh, I'd like to come over and interview for your agent training program. And they laughed for about an hour and a half. And they said, no, you just can't do it that way. We'll send you an application and when and if an, uh, an opening uh, comes about, we'll give you a call. 
So they sent me an application. So little faith that I have in that the reality of what they said there could happen. I, I think it sat on my desk uh, at home for a couple of weeks before I sent it back in. And one morning the phone rang and I remember distinctly the conversation almost word for word. Uh, Mr. Rosenfield, I said, yes. And they said, this is Jackie Sakaris from the William Morris office. You have applied for a job in our uh, agent training program. There is an opening, would you be available to come in for an interview? And like Eddie Murphy just looks at a camera and kind of nods. I go, yeah, I think I can do that. <laughs> Long story short, I went in and I got, I got the job. Uh, I came probably with one of the greatest lines I'll ever come up with. I really was the master of the hard sell on why I wanted to do something. Because now it had been a few weeks since I applied and I kind of had an idea what the what the, the drill was. And uh, the person who was interviewing me said, you're making it very difficult for me to say yes. I mean, you, I'm sorry. She said, I, you're making it very difficult for me to say no. And I came back with the best line ever that I'll ever have. I said, I'm not trying to make it difficult for you to say no. I'm trying to make it easy for you to say yes. <laughs> I, in, I, I lasted there for a while. And then I went to another company that did public relations, uh, which I was a better fit for. Uh, I didn't realize it at the time. I have, I have a theory that uh, you don't choose a career. A career chooses me. And... Uh, I, that's how I started. And that, that PR firm was Jay, was that Jay Bernstein, the PR firm? Yes, it was. And he was a major, he was a major maher in Hollywood at that time in the PR field. Yes, he was. There was two or three agencies that were above and beyond. And one of them is still around that uh, kind of bears the name Rogers and Cowan. Right. The guy just wrote a book, Jim Mahoney, who was like the, a major player. He handled Sinatra and people like that, and Jay. So um, uh, fortunately, uh, I got to learn. Uh, and when he he promised me when we had that get together uh, was that he would teach me the business, and he did. What was your first celebrity interaction? Uh, my first celebrity interaction was. Uh, Oh God, uh, there was a character actor by the name of Hans Conried. Oh, sure, of course, of course. I did something with him. I can't remember what it was, but. Uh, if, I'm just not mis if I'm not mistaken, he was also a regular on a TV uh, show called Stump the Stars, well, where I, he would play with Ross Martin. He was a regular on a radio show called My Friend Irma. Oh, sure. And uh, that was, you know, one of the first. And uh, I, I I liked it. I mean, I never looked at going to the office every day as work, and I still don't. It's what I do. Well, when I, I came to work for you in 1980, my first PR assignment from you uh, was you, you sent me to Magic Mountain for a personal appearance by Lou Ferrigno, the Incredible Hulk. Well, he, Lou is a client that I uh, I haven't been in contact with him in several years, but I was very fond of him. And uh, you know, well, I mean, the 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 audience should know that you are one of the most 
uh, I would say most effective PR professionals in Hollywood. Uh, and you've always been a uh, inspiration to me that your knowledge of media and some of your clients, Danny DeVito, George Clooney, to name a few, uh, you've always been a terrific pro, but I had no idea you were such a movie buff. Name some more because they'll get upset if they're listening to this and if they don't get their name mentioned. But there's besides George Clooney, there's uh, Morgan Freeman, there's uh, uh, Ellen Mirren, there's. Now, I'm, Stan, I'm going to interrupt you to sit a little closer to the microphone because I think we're losing you volume wise. You want me to sit closer? Yeah. Okay, hold on. I have to move this thing closer to me. Uh, is this better? Better. Thank you. So you were saying Morgan Freeman. Freeman, George Clooney, uh, Helen Mirren, uh, Jeffrey Rush, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, uh, just some people like that. Yeah, we've heard of a few of those. <laughs> but, but tonight, tonight we're we're going to talk about our favorite director, Billy Wilder. And I want to start by mentioning a movie that you and I are both big fans of, which is the best picture of 1960, The Apartment. Well, before we get into the apartment, let me just say that growing up, I went to the movies like two or three times a week. And uh, on Friday night in junior and senior high school, we went to the local theater there. And there's always a double feature. We never looked in the paper to see what we were seeing. We just went to the movies. And um, it was really interesting because the one of the things I never really paid attention to is I went to a movie and I was, oh, that was a John Wayne movie, or oh, that was a, a movie that starred uh, somebody. I didn't go to a movie based on who directed it. Uh, that was not in my wheelhouse. And it wasn't until later in life that I realized that many of the movies that I didn't like, but I loved, were directed by Billy Wilder. And I remember seeing The Apartment when I was in college and I still remember that scene at the end when Shirley MacLaine is running down the street with that great theme music in the background to Jack Lemmon's apartment where they are going to play probably the most famous game of gin in the history of cinema. It's a great scene. It's a great scene. And I think I saw, I, pro, I, I most likely did not see the apartment in a movie theater. I probably watched it on one of the movie channels in the six, late 60s. And um, it became a movie I was so enamored with that I would record the audio and I would play the audio consistently. Uh, the thing I liked about Billy Wilder movies, uh, amongst many things, is he liked to employ uh, he liked to employ narration to kind of set the table, you know. Cookie does it in Stalag Seventeen. Paul uh, Paul Ewell does it in the Seven Year Itch, uh, and it's certainly ever present with Jack Lemon in the apartment. Um, that opening moment where he says, "On November first, nineteen fifty nine, the population of New York City was eight million. It's 82,247. If you let all these people uh, end to end figuring an average height of five foot six and a half inches, they'd stretch from the Times Square to the outskirts of Karachi, Pakistan. I know facts like that because I work for an insurance company, Consolidated Life. I can go on and on. And I'm not going to bore you. 
but I, but he always gets his projects off to a great start with narration. I find that narration isn't used as much anymore, but it certainly is effective when it is used. Well, let me ask you, uh, you're quite right. Uh, in the movie One, Two, Three, which I saw in college, um, did, they, did he use narration at any point in that movie? You know, it's a good question. I do not know that one as encyclopedically as I know the apartment in Stalag 17, but I wouldn't be surprised. Um, I'm thinking of, uh, I don't think he uses narration in Some Like It Hot either. Well, I saw I Some Like It Hot. Uh, I just uh, actually was watching it tonight. I'm about 20 minutes away from a conclusion. I've seen it many, many times. So, um, I um, I don't recall if he used narration in that. I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, you know, for the listeners who aren't very familiar with Billy Wilder, Billy Wilder was born in Europe. Uh, he made started to write and make you know be involved in the film business in Europe, but I don't think he really got going until he came to the States. And uh, some of his early successes include The Lost Weekend, which was the best picture of the year that year in 1945. Uh, the previous year he had done Double Indemnity with Fred McMurray, who's our star of, of um, The Apartment. Interestingly, I think I mentioned this to you the other day, the research shows that the first choice to play Jeff Sheldrake, uh, the personnel manager of the Consolidated Insurance Company, was Paul Douglas. And I think you were a little surprised to hear that. Yes, because it makes it a totally different movie with Paul Douglas, who uh, made, uh, who starred in one of my favorite all-time movies, uh, *Angels in the Outfield*. I love Paul Douglas, but it kind of it was a, it would be a different movie, uh, Paul Douglas, because uh, Paul Douglas would come off kind of as a, a dirty old man instead of just a polished uh, huckster, which Fred McMurray was. Uh, and for those who are listening. If they've never seen the apartment, uh, it's on MGM Plus, either on Roku or DirecTV. Uh, I would, uh, I would just say it's a, it's, you know, treat yourself to a wonderful evening at home and watch it. You know, Billy Wilder was an entertainer, and although I'm not about to do a big diatribe about films today, I think that. One thing is for certain, a lot of movies are very well made, but I question whether they're entertainment. And I think that um, the the films of Billy Wilder, as you've pointed out, as I've pointed out, can be watched over and over and over again and not lose much in the, re, the rebroadcasting. Whereas some of the movies I see today and again, uh, the, some of them are nominated for Oscars. Some of them win Oscars. Some of them are very well, the critics love them. Do I want to own that movie? Do I want to see it a second time? I think that people of Billy's era, particularly in the 50s and 60s, they knew how to entertain mass audiences. And Billy Wilder had the ability to find a subject that just people loved. Well, you're absolutely uh, right on on that. I'm just looking at a list of his movies and six or seven of them I've seen at least three or four times. And uh, there's other movies out there that I've seen 
that many times. I like to see a movie that I've seen before uh, if I really love the movie. And, and here again, as I said earlier, I didn't realize until later that a lot of these movies I truly loved were directed by Billy Wilder because I didn't really, I wasn't motivated by the director. I was motivated by the star of the movie. Uh, and this is what happens when you grow up in a, uh, not in the LA area where you're subject to the entertainment world. It's just, uh, you look in the paper, oh, there's a new John Wayne movie uh, or or something like oh, that. I, I agree entirely. And I, and I grew up in the LA area and I also didn't have that feeling. I fact, in fact, I didn't know much about the film business until I bought a book uh, just as I graduated high school called All Singing, All Talking, All Dancing. It was just oh a book of God. all the- Oh you know that I did the PR for that book? Really? Yes. Uh, you know the guy who wrote it, right? Right. Uh, he called Jay Bernstein and uh, wanted to hire Jay for uh, a month or two uh, as a, a great Christmas present uh, for movie buffs. And Jay put me on the account and I got to know the uh, author at that time. I even knew his name. It has slipped me right now. So if you can remember, help me out. I'm Googling as we speak. And his, he was, it was either his son or somebody else also was in the PR business who I do keep up with. And I can't remember his name either, obviously. I can't keep up with him that cleverly, but, uh, um, but yeah, I, I have a copy of the book here. It's in my library. It was my first film book. And um, I'm looking it up right now because uh, it kind of, it kind of, his name was John Springer. Okay, uh, Gary Springer is his son, and uh, Gary is in the PR business. I have not talked to Gary in a few years, but we became good friends because of my relationship with John Springer. And that was the first book, I was the first film book I ever owned, and it was a book that showed me the names of all these pictures and who directed them, and I never knew. That was long, long before anything like the internet appeared, and we had to learn this stuff through books but um you know it, getting back to the the issue of entertainment i think that the thing about billy wilder movies is also a thing about classic movies classic movies are are like classic paintings you can look at them again and again without losing a lot of the joy in fact sometimes i'll revisit a movie and i'll love it even more <laughs> well uh they're this is the reason they call them classics i mean right now the cone brothers i have it's my love affair with the Cone Brothers is similar to my love affair with Billy Wilder. I've seen Fargo at least nine or ten times. I've seen uh, many uh, Cone Brothers movies multiple times. But um, you know, it's just uh, I, I'm a I'm a fan of the product. Uh, it's I'm not uh, I don't know how else to say it. I mean, when I go to a movie. Uh, and if I, when it's over, and if I think I want to see this movie again, uh, I will probably see it many times again. I don't say that as much as I used to. Um, interestingly, about Fred McMurray, he was a little hesitant to take this role. He had just signed a contract to do a bunch of Disney movies, which would start with uh, 
the absent, not the absent mind professor, the, the flubber, the, the flubber movie. Uh, it might have been actually. I think it was called the Absent Minded Professor, and the 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 sequel was called Son of Flubber. Um, but he was hesitant to take a role with a disreputable character, uh, and I think that what happened was he remembered that he had played an equally disreputable character in the Lost in um, in Double Indemnity sixteen years earlier. So I think he I think he respected Billy Wilder. Uh, very much so, and um, he would have had to, yes, absolutely. And of course, his leading lady. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about Jack Lemon. I mean, Jack Lemon was not was not unknown at this time. This is 1960. Uh, I think he won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor five years earlier for Mr. Roberts. Uh -huh. So he was on the radar. Uh, he had just worked with Billy Wilder on Some Like It Hot, which we'll discuss in a moment. Uh, so um, Lemon was a perfect choice to be C.C. Baxter, C for Calvin, C for Clifford. Most people call me Bud. And uh, I, I got a chance. You, you probably have met Lemon over the years, I would think, Stan, huh? Uh, I actually met him when the Lakers, and this for the people who live in L.A., they probably won't even remember it, but I met him at a Laker playoff game when the Lakers played at what is later called the LA sports arena. I don't even think it's, I think they tore it down. Um, and I asked him uh, about Irma LaDouche. Oh. And, uh, it was, uh, it was, I mean, that I remember just going up to him and how approachable he was. Uh, uh, and, in fact, uh, one of my clients is Charlie Mathau, whose son is Walter Mathau. And of course, you can't say Walter Mathau without saying Jack Lemon. One of the great comedy teams in history. Yeah. So I worked with Jack on two films for Showtime. I was um, the unit publicist on the remake of 12 Angry Men. Okay. And I was the unit publicist on the remake of Inherit the Wind. And I was sitting on a couch during 12 Angry Men with Jack one day. I turned over to him. And of all the movies I could have talked to him about, I said, Jack, I really love the wackiest ship in the army. Uh -huh. And he looked at me like I was absolutely crazy. Um, it, it, interestingly, it was released the same year as The Apartment, but it's a different kind of a movie, but a fun movie. Um, but Jack was a total pro, and the, the character of C.C. Baxter is just an interesting character. It's just, he's basically playing uh, a guy who, not unlike the Robert um, Morse character in... Uh, how to Succeed? Yes, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. He's trying to make it through, not necessarily super ambitious. In fact, he says in the narration, he doesn't he doesn't like to stay after work because uh, he's overly ambitious. It's because he has a problem with his apartment where his fellow executives are using it for shopping, uh, <laughs> which is a, which is a great, uh, which is a great setup, which is a terrific setup. And um, I thought he was perfectly class, as was Shirley MacLaine. I mean, Shirley MacLaine was a relatively new person in Hollywood. Um, I think she she had kind of made her debut with Alfred Hitchcock a few years uh, earlier, 
And uh, interestingly, during a break on the filming of The Apartment, she ran over to Vegas and did the cameo in the original Ocean's Eleven. Well, um, I certainly remember her from that movie, and she was one of the reasons why I remember that movie so much. And I just watched it again, I don't know, about two, three weeks ago, and I loved it as much when I watched it again as when I'd seen it the other umpteen thousand times. And I will look forward to seeing it again. Yes, and that's the, that is the definition of a true classic, that you can just watch it and watch it and watch it. I kind of almost feel like it's inviting friends over to the house and uh, having them hang out for a couple hours because uh, watching them is just so much fun. And um, let's talk a little bit about, I mean, Apartment, as some, most people know, went on to win Best Picture that year for for the Oscar, which was well-deserved. And um, Billy Wilder won for Best Director. I think he also won, won for Best Writing. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a marvelous film to see over and over again. Um, they actually made a musical a few years later uh, called Promises, Promises. With Burt Bacharach doing the music, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's, that's not the first time that a Billy Wilder feature film became a musical. The movie we'll talk about next, Some Like It Hot, also uh, a birthday musical called Sugar, which is interesting. Um, what's your feeling about Some Like It Hot? Uh, I Well, I just, uh, here again, I'm, I'm 20 minutes away from finishing the movie. Um, I think that if it came out today, uh, it would be criticized for uh, stereotyping uh, uh, women uh, and making them sex objects. Um, and there's a scene in um, Some Like It Hot, which I'm surprised I, it hasn't been clipped and shown on a lot of news shows, especially with the, uh, the current news of uh, same-sex marriage, uh, where Tony Curtis is trying to explain to Jack Lemon why he can't marry uh, Joey Brown. He says, well, first of all, you're a guy and he's a guy and you can't do that. And it was like, uh, it, it, some like it hot kind of dates itself a little. Um, however, uh, you know, I certainly uh, should not have started watching it when I watched it because I needed to set it down and uh, speak with you on the record. Uh, but uh, I really like Sun Like It Hot. Uh, we don't go uh, not in the, because um, uh, this is before I got to Hollywood, we handled Nehemiah Persoff. And while watching it tonight, uh, I actually said to the TV set, uh, repeated some lines, you do have a bicycle. And the other line I repeated is, Daphne, you're leaving again. And of course, the lifespan of the movie is nobody's perfect. Interestingly, in Marilyn Monroe's contract, uh, and this is something I read about in IMDb, that, that she's supposed to make all of her movies in color. Uh, well, Billy Wilder got her to um, to agree to doing a black and white film. Apparently, when they did the makeup tests on Jack Lemon and Tony Curtis, 
they turned out to be green. And uh, they were all scrambling to figure out how are we going to do this movie in color with green makeup? Otherwise, they'd probably be cousins of the Wicked Witch of the West. So uh, they decided to make it in black and white. And I think uh, it's, you know, it's it's a pretty crisp uh, black and white film. And Marilyn Monroe, who, of course, is so, so Marilyn Monroe-esque in this movie, it's probably my favorite film of hers. Well, Apparently, I certainly was captivated by her. I mean, I really was. Um, the, um, uh, I, mean, I just never appreciated how wonderful she was. She was just, uh, um, the role of Sugar was, was a classic role. You know, she's, um, she's an example of the type of actor of that period that just had people mesmerized. And I'm not saying that actors today don't have the same, you know, but I think the combination of the Billy Wilder entertainer bringing these actors to the to the big screen, people like Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon, and I, just the way that these stories were written were just, they're just timeless. And yes, they, that's a little dated now, true, but the comedy isn't dated. It's still the very, very funny. At all. Still very, very funny. Now, I'm um, going to tell your listeners a Steve Rubin story. And uh -oh. I hope you know the story. Um, when you were my assistant uh, in the 1980s, uh, you gave me a Christmas present of a pen and pencil set. And I called you into my office and I said, is this what you really want to give the boss for Christmas, a pen and pencil set? And you came with a very, at, for the time, a very predict predictable reason. You said, look, I don't make a lot of money, as you know. Um, I wanted to give you something nice. Uh, I'm on a budget. I'm not like all the other people around here. And I, and I said, I'm going to tell you something, Steve. You have misread the situation. It's not how much something costs. It's the meaning behind it. And about a week later, you came back into my office and said, uh, you can do what you wish with that pen and pencil set. You can give it back, whatever. Here's your Christmas present. And you gave me, I still have it. It still hangs in my home. You gave me the poster of Stalag 17, which probably cost you 2 or $3 dollars at a uh, one of those souvenirs places and you probably spent another two or three or four dollars having it framed and it was one of the greatest gifts ever and i just said to you at the time you figured it out this is fantastic and there was a little restaurant right next to my office that i would go to for lunch from time to time and i noticed one day sitting at a table uh next to me was billy wilder and I went up to him and I told him the story that I just repeated to you. And I said, if I go next door to my office and bring that uh, poster back, and the poster is like eight by 10 or a little. Maybe it's actually a lobby card. A lobby card. I said, would you autograph it? And uh, he said, sure. And on my Stalag 17 poster is an autographed 
in the upper right-hand corner by Billy Wilder, and it's still to this day one of my prized possessions. That's a great story, Stan. I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I, I'm just so happy you brought that up because it showed I, I was able to learn in those days. <laughs> well, uh, you know, there's another thing which your audience does not realize that oftentimes in the morning when I'm driving to work, I'll call you and we'll just talk about movies we've seen or situations that we've seen that we continue uh, a dialogue over and above. This is my second appearance on your podcast. Uh, we, we have a mutual respect for things that we think matter. And um, there are like in there, if, if, if a lot of your audience, I don't know how old your average age is, but if they're sitting around saying, I've never heard of these movies and I don't know who Billy Wilder was, because I, I talked to a couple people in my office today, they don't know who Billy Wilder is and they don't know, they don't know what the apartment was or some like it hot. And, uh, you know, it's just um, uh, the comedian, uh, Dick Cavett once said, I love old movies. They just don't seem to make them anymore. <laughs> and, uh, there are movies today that uh, the, the generation that I was way back then are, are going to the movies. They know exactly who these directors are. And in 20, 30, 40 years, they're going to be on some local podcast talking about how they were influenced by uh, director X or writer X or why that so you know the more things change the more things stay the same as someone once said one, one of the things i was reading about is as much as we love marilyn monroe on screen and and she's riveting and mesmerizing and just stunning apparently she was just a total pain in the a to work with uh she would come to work late uh she would not remember her lines there's a there's a, apparently again according to IMDb there's a there's a scene in the movie where she's looking for the booze and all she has to say is bourbon and she kept on missing it so I think Billy had the name bourbon written inside the drawer she was rifling through and uh, the one drawer she kept on forgetting so he ended up putting it in all the drawers but uh, she 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 apparently just had trouble with her lines and they would, uh, I guess the, one of the funny thing was, was that uh, Tony Curtis and Jack Lemon are standing around in high heels waiting for her to get the lines and their feet became very sore apparently. Uh, so there were some challenges, but the, the, the final, the final effect of the movie is just great. Just great. Well, uh, I'm, I'm not surprised one way or the other that, she might have been looked at as being difficult. Actresses and actors today have that uh, stigma. And uh, the Marilyn Monroe that I know and love, uh, I saw in the movie, uh, uh, Some Like It Hot. Absolutely. And the nice thing about classic movies is that they never, those actors never die. They're always there available to us as fresh as they were the first time we saw them. Now, a movie that Billy directed five years earlier, which I know is a, a, a you're a fan of, is Sabrina. I think Sabrina truly is uh, is your classic love story. I mean, it just 
it just is. I mean, Humphrey Bogart and Audrey Hepburn, and uh, uh, I mean, it's just if if you have not gone to see Sabrina, there's been a remake or two of it since, but go see. Uh, you'll find it somewhere. The Humphrey Bogart, uh, Catherine uh, Hepburn, not Catherine Hepburn, Audrey Hepburn uh, version, and it's. Uh, uh, and just I can still hear uh, Humphrey Bogart saying the word Larrabee in my in my he imagination. Plays, uh, he, he plays for the listeners who have not seen Sabrina. The setup is fairly simple. Linus Larrabee is the Humphrey Bogart character. He's the middle aged um, uh, super executive of a major company. Uh, he works for his father who's still around in his 80s, and his younger brother, David, played by William Holden as a blonde yet, which is kind of interesting. Um, they are both working at this company. They're very wealthy New Yorkers, and uh, the chauffeur's daughter is Audrey Hepburn. Now, you got to understand that in 1954, Audrey Hepburn had just come off making Roman Holiday and won the Oscar for best actor the previous year for that, as did William Holden for Stalag 17. So Billy Wilder was blessed. Talk about the cast of casts. Not only did he have two great actors and three great actors with Bogart, but he had two of the best actors from last year. So this is the cast of all casts. But there were problems. Apparently, uh, William Holden and Humphrey Bogart did not get along at all. Um, Bogart was a little upset that the script wasn't finished when they were shooting there. Apparently, Ernest Lehman, who was writing the script, had to write scenes at the last minute, almost had a nervous breakdown. It may have had a nervous breakdown working on this film. Um, so one day they had to uh, ask uh, uh, Audrey Hepburn to fake an uh, illness so they could finish the scene so they could shoot it. And Bogart felt a little bit out of place. He felt it was really, was he a miscast person? Because this was not his typical role. But I thought he was absolutely charming. Didn't you, Stan? I thought he was wonderful. And uh, I just, I mean, there's scenes from that. Now, I've not seen Sabrina in several years. Uh, I'm going to have to find it and go look for it. Maybe it's on MG, uh, MGM+. Plus. But when um, William Holden puts the... Uh, champagne uh, <laughs> glasses in his rear pocket and has to sit down and uh, just uh, just classic scenes but okay, it, great. but going back to the apartment for a second the central theme is when somebody is in love with somebody that they shouldn't be in love with they have no chance of getting them and it happens i mean it's a love story that has a, a happiness there i mean uh, just uh... just so much fun. Just, just so much fun. I remember John Williams played her father, the chauffeur, in, uh -huh. in Sabrina. And great character actor. And Sabrina at first is introduced as kind of, you know, kind of a uh, all arms and legs, a little bit awkward. You know, she lives above the garage. And then she goes off to Paris to go to cooking school and comes back as this total sophisticate and I remember William Holden, who's a bit of a cad in this movie, if not a big cad, just sees her and falls for her. And Humphrey Bogart isn't exactly looking for love. In fact, he's all business. Uh, but somehow there's a little spark. So it's a classic love triangle. 
And there's something that I, a word that I do not utter a lot in movies today, and that is the word charming. Something okay. about something about the way Billy Wilder and his comedies just made them so charming. Okay, let me ask you a question that I don't really know the answer to yet. Um, you and I have talked about remakes of movies. Um, if they would remake Sabrina, who would play the Humphrey Bogart character today? Lots of people could play the William um, uh, Holden character, but the Humphrey Bogart character, who is somebody that on the surface is so cold and by the numbers uh, is not warm and fuzzy? Who would be a good choice for that? That's a very good question. Very good question. I'm thinking through a razzle-dazzle of faces. You know, I, I, your client, George Clooney, to me, is such a movie star. He would probably be, you know, he's kind of a little more David than Linus, but... Uh, well, he's yeah, definitely David. He's definitely David. In terms of Linus, um, it's a very good question. Now, when they remade the movie in 94 with Harrison Ford, I never actually saw that remake, so I can't comment on it. But uh, today, who's no-nonsense, no-business? I mean, totally business-oriented. Uh, you know, Matt Damon might be a little too young, though. He also might be a David. Uh, although, thinking Tom Hanks, perhaps, could play Linus. Yes. I mean, it was, uh, that would be a good choice. Yeah, and then who would play Sabrina today? We, I think we have got some interesting choices today. Um, Margot Robbie is very that's, popular. That's who came to my mind immediately, Margot Robbie. Yeah, and yeah, then, she's just totally charming. See, that's the the, the beauty of a, a Wilder script, you know, uh, just just the the things he put in that, that make them such great parts for for actors. Now we have to understand that Billy. Um, not only did love stories, he could be very cynical. And one movie I discovered really late in life, I did not see it early on in my life. A lot of those uh, who are listening who went to film school probably saw it early, but Sunset Boulevard is an iconic film as well. And perhaps one of the most cynical films about Hollywood ever. Well, anytime you open up a movie with a guy lying dead in a pool, Who's talking to you? <laughs> there apparently there was one scene they shot, which they cut from the movie. After you see William Holden lying dead in the pool and he's suddenly talking to you, they cut to the morgue and he's lying on a slab uh, with his toe tag, and he's continuing to discuss how he got in the situation. Well, perhaps they thought that was a bit much, but um, in a few weeks I'll be inter interviewing Nancy Olson who played uh, his girl, one of his girlfriends in the movie, uh, which I'm looking forward to asking her questions about that. But Sunset Boulevard is, again, black and white. So this is in the era where a lot of films were in black and white, but again, beautifully written. And um, just if you haven't seen Sunset Boulevard, it's a, it's a must. It's one of those movies on the list of you got to see it before you die. Wouldn't you agree, Stan? Oh, 100%. I mean, I we're overusing the word but we really aren't classic i mean we're talking classics so you know, some filmmakers they're lucky if they make one classic in their career 
arguably Billy Wilder made a dozen and 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 we're there there are movies that I wasn't very familiar with that I've seen of late that um I actually I had not seen Irma LaDuce until a couple years ago and he kind of brought back some of the cast from the apartment he recast Jack Lemmon and and Shirley MacLaine and that's a lot of that movie's a lot of fun especially seeing Jack Lemmon as a French policeman well you know one day uh when you're sitting around looking for things that might be of interest, uh, start listing the movies that you've seen at least five times. And um, uh, you'll be amazed of how many movies make that list. It's true. It's true. I was listening to some today. I'm, I'm always, I don't, I just not very good with silence. So whenever I go from room to room, I I put on I put on an audio of a movie because I have them playing in the bathroom. I got them playing in the living room. And uh, it's just, you know, some people listen to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. I listen to Billy Wilder movies and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Speaking of et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, one of our favorites is another classic Billy Wilder. One, two, three. One, two, three was when you talk about Billy Wilder movies and you name a Billy Wilder movie, the next sentence that automatically follows, that was a great movie. Uh, especially, um, you know, uh, that one scene, uh, the word, the German word for jewelry is um, schmuck. And uh, some spelled schmuck. <laughs> when the guy comes in and uh, does, they don't, they're not speaking the same language, he goes schmuck. And I, mean, I just remember that being so funny. Uh, and of course, uh, you got to marry off your daughter to be the, and otherwise they're going to lose your job as the head of Coca-Cola. Well, the, one, two, three is the movie that Billy directed after the apartment. So he's coming off a best picture winner. And for those of you who haven't seen one, two, three, it's a classic setup. It's 1961. We're in West Berlin, Germany. It's in the middle of the Cold War. The, the wall is as present as ever. And Jimmy Cagney, the great actor of a thousand movies, plays a Coca-Cola executive whose daughter falls in love with a communist, played by Horst Buchholz, who had just been in The Magnificent Seven as Chico. And um, <laughs> the, the president of Coca-Cola is coming to Berlin with his wife. In fact, um, it's not Jimmy Cagney's, Cagney's daughter who falls in love with a communist. It's the daughter of the president of the company. And he's coming with his wife to visit Berlin. So they've got to clean up Horst Buchholz's character and make him a capitalist. <laughs> there's, there's just the way Jimmy Cagney orders people around in this movie that is absolutely hysterical. It's wonderful. It is really, um, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to, I wonder if it's on MG, M, uh Plus, I'm going to go find it and watch it in the next it movie. has a very fast moving script i mean it's um the name by the way horse buckle's name is otto ludwig otto ludwig piffle and um pamela tiffin plays the owner of the company's daughter the lovely pamela tiffin she plays scarlet hazel hazel team 
and uh, and Howard St. John plays Mr. Hazelty and the head of Coca-Cola. It's just, it, it is very much of its period. It is the Cold War, but uh, Billy, Billy Wilder is poking a lot of fun at the, the whole Cold War atmosphere. And just, it's a complete joy to watch. Now, on a, on a completely different note, a film I discovered years later, have, have you seen The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes? No, I've not. Private Life of Sherlock Holmes did not do very well. I have a feeling that it might have been because of the casting. Um, the movie that um, the movie features a, a fairly unknown cast. This is a movie that was released in 1970, and the the leads. Uh, Sherlock Holmes was played. It's a Sherlock Holmes movie, obviously. Robert Stevens played the lead. And uh, Colin Blakely played Dr. Watson. Now, for an American audience, nobody knew who these people were. And I think that probably hurt its box office. But this, Stan, is a terrific Billy Wilder movie. It starts with Sherlock Holmes. And this is this is kind of, I won't say this is an R-rated Sherlock Holmes movie, but it's not a G-rated one either. It's a little bit, it has some sexiness to it and some uh, thriller elements. And... Most of all, it has a Miklas Roja score, and Roja just is a wonderful composer, and um, there's a kind of melancholiness about Sherlock Holmes in this story, and um, I highly recommend it. Another, another character playing his brother is Christopher Lee. He plays Mycroft Holmes, so um, it, it has a fine cast. Um, Genevieve Page is in the movie. And uh, I'm looking to see the other cast members. Clive Revel is in it. It was shot, I think it was shot overseas. So that's why you don't see a lot of American names. Well, but, I look forward to watching it. I, I've got some work cut out for me in the next week of, of films uh, um, I need to see again and for the first time. Sure, sure, absolutely. For the listeners, we've been having a very spirited discussion about Billy Wilder's films and I encourage you to listen to one of our previous podcasts all about Stalag 17, which uh, we ran a whole hour just discussing that one movie. And uh, it's just a wonderful William Holden film. That was the film he won his Oscar for. It has, a, again, a great character cast. Um, Stan, it's been terrific having you as always. I look forward to us having other classic movie nights. I would love to have you on again. I'm for it. The pay is good. <laughs> no, no, no pencil sets anymore. No, but the thing is, the pay is, I love talking about this. And you're one of the few people that share my sensitivities, or I share yours. And uh, I, I really uh, uh, love doing this, Steve. And I want to just thank you for the hard work you put in to make all this seemingly seamless. Thanks, Dan. You've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Stan. Have a good night. You too, Steve. Thank you.